Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Thank you so much for deciding to spend some time with us here today. If you haven't already, please do hit subscribe on whichever platform you're using to listen, and that way the latest episodes get downloaded straight to your device of choice. Now, very often on the podcast, we talk about a change in the curriculum, a way of doing things differently, and today I'm really excited to talk to Conrad Wolfram. Conrad is a leading advocate for a fundamental shift in math education to become computer-based or alternatively introduce a new core subject of computational thinking. He founded computerbasedmath.org and computationalthinking.org to fundamentally fix maths education for the AI age. The movement is now a worldwide force in re-engineering the STEM curriculum. His groundbreaking book, The Maths Fix, an educational blueprint for the AI age, was released on the 10th of June 2020. Now just before this fantastic conversation, here's a quick thank you to our sponsor. I'd like to thank the National Association for Primary Education for their continued support and sponsorship of the Education on Fire podcast. In March, they have a brand new conference which is online called Towards the Balanced and Broadly Based Curriculum. Now, the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on children's education may be perceived as a justification for narrowing the curriculum at the expense of the arts and the humanities. But this conference will explore the case for preserving young children's entitlement to as rich and diverse a curriculum as possible. Dr. Yude's keynote lecture will set the scene, highlighting some key issues and considering some lessons to be learnt from the period of lockdown. The subsequent presentations will focus on classroom practice, providing a spotlight on innovations which have been implemented in school and offering guidance for the future. Now, to find out more about this conference, please go to nape.org.uk forward slash conference. That's nape.org.uk forward slash conference. Hello, Conrad. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. It's great to be here. So this I'm very excited about because one of the things I talk about so much on the podcast is how we create the environment that we need in order to learn. And I think that comes from it being purposeful in terms of being fit for purpose in terms of how our education system is set. And then beyond that, if we don't feel that's the case, how we can do it as individuals. So having watched your TED talk, having thought about exactly what it is that we're doing, especially maths was in school, then it always seemed to me that it was one step removed from certainly what children are interested in, but also at the same time, what industry was saying they wanted as well. So let's start exactly with that question, you know, what is maths for and, and, and how do we go about using that within the school system? So out in the real world, the, the, the right maths, and we'll come back to that, is really has been driving, you know, progress in the world particularly hard for the last 50 plus years. It's the thing that underlies the fantastic engineering we have, the smartphones, uh, the way we communicate. It's the underlying, uh, in a sense, human endeavor that has allowed us to build all of these great technologies. And of course, one of the biggest sort of underlying technologies there are computers, which themselves were a product to some extent of mathematics. Um, Alan Turing, who was the the great mathematician who you could say invented computers that was never down to one person but he was the closest i think one could say in uh, to uh, break the enigma codes in the, in the second world war and of course was a mathematician himself uh, british and uh 
it's um you know he invented the computer in effect which was a machine built out of mathematics and so one of the amazing aspects of our education at the moment is that for a country where we essentially have the inventor of the computer who was a mathematician we more or less ban computers out of learning out of the uh, out of the subject of mathematics in schools and therefore rather remove that subject from the one i've just been describing in the outside world and, and this year particularly maths has been absolutely in the forefront in the real world because of trying to figure out what to do about covid-19 uh, I'm not actually very happy with all of how it's been used. That's a separate conversation. <laughs> but the idea that our lives are dependent completely in the outside world and what mathematics can do is uh, is definitely out there um, very centrally this year. And do you think from a school point of view, is it just that, I guess, the government don't know what to do in order to change? Because it does seem to me... That, like, like I said to begin with, you know, industry is asking for a certain type of person to go into the world of work. Um, and even if we take the standpoint that that's all education is for, which I don't believe for a moment, but if we, even if you take that yeah. from a sort of a political standpoint, it's still not even delivering on that, is it? So, no. Um, what, why do you think that might be? Total confusion is the number one reason, right? And, and in fact, I go into this in some detail in my book. Even people who are sort of, you know, technically educated, people admitting people at universities and, and technical people in industry, they find it very difficult to put together. They know there's a problem. They know they're not getting the, the right product, which is a term I hate in terms of students, but just to put it that way. But somehow they can't quite abstract out what the problem is. And so they sort of push for more mathematics, harder mathematics, in the hope that will solve the problem. And then, of course, the government in the middle of this have all sorts of people telling them what to do, and, and they get even more confused and, and don't want to do anything too revolutionary. My message is, is simple at some level, which is, in order to mimic the real-world utility of maths, we need computers doing the calculating. And removing them from educational maths is completely removing most of the context that's so critical for our students to learn most of the complexity of the problems that they need to be able to solve in the outside world and even changing the tool sets that they need to learn to the point where it's pretty much unrecognizable i mean for example we all have to learn quadratic equation solutions at school and i've challenged many ministers around the world including some of our own in, in the uk as to when they last used a quadratic equation it's actually very hard to find somebody. You know, if you're a technical person, you might happen to use one, but you'd solve it on a computer and it'd probably be a differential equation or many other types of equation. The idea of an equation is a very important idea. Knowing the details of solving the quadratic is a completely different set of skills that frankly nobody really uses. I mean, if, if when the ministers are sharp, they say, Oh, oh, I lost use it to help my to help my, my kids at school um, in the, on their homework. But that's hardly a good reason for why everyone should learn it. And yet there are things now like machine learning, which are used all the time in the outside world. And I think one could introduce some understanding of machine learning to ten year olds. There's nothing intrinsically conceptually hard about the idea of how it works. You know, and there's no reason not to use it. Of course, you need a computer to use it. Can't be done without a computer. And so that's the kind of change you could see in the subject matter. And back to your question of the confusion, uh, most people are totally confused about what maths is, is, is altogether, why it's there in education, why it's mainstream in education. 
And a comparison I make quite a lot in, in the book is about Latin. I mean, whether you like Latin or not, I think forcing the, the, the entire population to learn it in order to be allowed to get into a good university doesn't seem like the right thing. Yet that is what happened in the 1950s. You know, in order to go and study, I don't know, science at a good university, you had to have a Latin A-level. I think that's a little bit the situation we've currently got with the traditional maths, but there is this subject we, we really need. But there's total confusion about it. One other aspect of confusion I'll add <laughs> is people think of computers as a way to assist pedagogy of learning today's subjects. And sure, there are great ways computers can help, though I think teachers are absolutely central as well. That's a fundamentally different use of computers to having them change the subject itself and so a piece of confusion that really percolates through government is is the difference between those two they say we are applying computers in maths and you say what are you doing and they say well we're helping students learn how to solve their quadratics by hand and you say that sounds a bit backwards to me that's really interesting and, and i think it is that essence isn't it i mean every student and I don't want to say every student, including primary school, but even probably as low down as kind of reception to year one, will have access to a smartphone, even if it's only for parents um, and that kind of thing. And and they will be doing calculations, they will be doing gaming, they'll be doing um, computational thinking in some form or another. And it's a very it's there to be used. It's there to be expanded upon. And and I think. I kind of want to always take a, a big enough step back to think about, you know, why was maths and English so important when, you know, in the industrial age, when, when that sort of education kind of became a, a mass thing? And of course, it's because before that, people didn't have any any sort of experience of what that was. You know, we wanted people to be able to, to count, to have some kind of mental numeracy and, and literacy. Yep. and. And so it was solving that problem and it was really helping and it gave people knowledge and important information which then helped them in their lives. And it seems if you start from that point, then you could start to think about how we could teach these things different now, like I say, based on this real world. And that's exactly what we've tried to do with computerbasedmath.org over the last decade. And, and what my book is walking through in some detail bit too much detail for some people not enough for others but I tried to go a middle ground in that and it's really really hard it's like saying given that you're you know given that you're used to the ten commandments go rewrite the commandments and because one's been infused with this all through one's life as that you know as you say English maths are important and they're sacrosanct to your education it's very hard even if you know them well to step back and say hang on which bit of that did I really need and which bit didn't I need your point is a very interesting one about the sort of what was achieved in the, in the last industrial revolution, I should say, uh, with respect to education. And the idea that, I mean, let's remember back in, I suppose, the early 1800s, uh, a comparison I've used quite often, which I think is interesting, is people thought mass literacy wasn't really a possibility. They thought, I mean, to put it bluntly, they thought most people were too stupid to learn to read and write. You know, that there was a small band at the top at the top end, so to speak, the, the sort of priests and aristocrats who could figure it out and everybody else was, was, you know, kind of that wouldn't work. Obviously, that's been proved dramatically wrong. And I think one of the, you know, if you want to pick a real dramatic success of mass education, it is the idea of literacy for everyone, how that's moved, you know, everybody's lives forward and, and also our economies forward at the same time. So I'm arguing that we're in a new era where 
in a sense, computational literacy could be that that new bedrock for everyone. But we haven't got it at the moment. We've got a few aficionados at the top end who kind of understand it and, and not others. And that's that's sort of where I'm I'm hoping um, we we may be able to go. And I think that this sort of maths for everyone, I, I believe there is a good case for that, but it's it's not the maths we're doing at the moment. And as you say, everyone, you know, some years ago, the problem was that many people didn't really have access to the machinery, but but they do now. I mean, as you say, between smartphones and tablets and laptops and everything else, uh, certainly a country like the UK, most people have pretty good access and it's not very hard financially to fill in where they don't. Uh, and so there's no reason not to use these things, but it's very hard to decide how to do it. And that's really what we've been trying to work on. And and it's interesting in, in the current climate, you know, with Brexit and this idea of, you know, what is the UK? What is England? How does it move forward? What's its identity related to its historical past and also its future? And And one of the things I really liked when I was sort of really exploring this was the idea that we could be world leaders in actually just thinking about this and then adopting a way of going about it in the way that we would have been proud to have said something we did sort of historically. Um, but yet there's so much comparison about what the, is the here and now with everyone else at the here and now. And it seems to me that that sort of idea of, of groundbreaking future thought and how that's then implemented is something that everyone's scared of. And it seems to me that we're, you know, we're in a position now where we could really embrace this and take it yeah. on board. Totally, <clears throat> totally agree with that. Um, lots of interesting parts that I mean, one is the idea. I mean, unfortunately, somebody told me uh, in the UK, actually, uh, who was doing uh, this was some years ago that they'd been sent around the world to look at best practice in maths so Britain could lead. And they didn't quite see <laughs> uh, what was wrong with that concept. Um, you're right. And in several ways, one of the aspects I, I argue about sometimes is that, you know, if you look at sort of UK society style, sort of the slight edginess that is promoted often uh, against, for example, some of the Asian cultures where it's you know, people are encouraged to be sort of more conformist. I think that the edginess is what we need and is actually that. So in a sense, we need to tether things the other way around to some other cultures in the sense that I think what you need to tether the edginess to is a process of computational thinking that allows you to take this sort of edginess and work lots of useful things out from that sort of help to, you know, because the future of what humans need to do is they need to be coming up with the ideas which they can then sort of work jointly with computers on on manifesting in a sense so there's this kind of hybrid ai human intelligence that we're that we're using uh, and if you want the human to be in control then the human needs to be the sort of idea needs to do the higher level more complex work in a sense and that's what you need to to have education prepare everyone for now i actually think it's in a sense not exactly easier but but a, a, a shift that's more doable to, to move a typical Brit who's slightly edgy and maybe not the best at following a process to be able to use that, that computational thinking system than it is to take somebody in a very conformist culture and have them try to think out of the box in a, in a very different way. And so I think that some of the PISA comparisons and things, which tend to favor some of those countries that do what I would call more procedural maths, I, I almost feel like we're playing on the, you know, the wrong game on the wrong playing field. And 
it's like we have a chance to leapfrog uh you know some of the singapores and finlands and things who do very well at that in those tests do something quite different that really keys into these strengths we have thinking out of the box having being able to handle complexity having really good ideas about new ways to to proceed i couldn't agree more and i think it's really interesting that the one thing we need for all of those things you've just mentioned are excited, enthusiastic students who want to be doing this. And so therefore, creating an education system across the board is really important that students and pupils understand that this is their world they're going into. You know, it's their thoughts, it's their ideas that are important. And we can then show you the tools, the skills and yeah. the sorts of experiences that we know now that you can then sort of take the baton, as it were, and, and, and go forward. So that even the concept of having a, a math lesson, which is just completely shutting everybody down, is, is the, like I say, the complete opposite of what we want. And I think having a broad curriculum so that people f find where that kind of their interests lie, because then they'll find where they want to head in the sorts of things that they want to do. And, and all of these other academic subjects are going to come to the fore as well. Yeah, one of the problems with maths particularly is that we start from the abstract. <laughs> And, you know, so you, you, I mean, going back to the quadratic equation example, you know, you're told go solve a quadratic equation. And after you've done that 30 times over, if you're very lucky, you might discover when you might actually use it. <laughs> the problem with that is, you know, there are a few folks, you know, possibly me included, who found that quite amusing because we could kind of beat our friends at it and were better at it than French, particularly in my case, I was absolutely hopeless at French. But um, and so it seemed more fun. But for most people, it's just like, what on earth has this got to do with anything? And if it doesn't seem fun either, it's like a real turnoff. So I think one of the important aspects of how we have to change change maths and, and generally education is start from something that seems to relate to the student's life, preferably their life at that time, or perhaps their life in the future if they can see that in, ahead. And then use, as you as you correctly say, use maths and computing as a tool for helping them to solve some of those issues. So what we've done is build a lot of modules, for example, uh, that start from questions like, am I normal? So a good teenage question, can maths help me with figuring out if I'm normal? <laughs> you know, like foot size or height or whatever it is, you know, and a bit later we have we have um, modules like are girls better at maths? So it's a data science question. You get all the data. What does better mean? I mean, it's a good question. Maybe if they're smart, the girls and the boys can figure out different different questions there so they can game uh, making sure that they come out with the best answers and so forth. Um, you know, there are more general topics like cause or correlation. You know, we have a there's an, uh, an example that's often given, you know, um, Countries with more chocolate consumption tend to have more Nobel Prizes. So does chocolate, eating more chocolate cause more Nobel Prizes? Question. You know, so there are many of these examples that really fit. I think, you know, and one has to find different students obviously will have different interests. And so you, you want to have a whole set of these that will hopefully kick off an interest. And then you start to learn where can mathematics actually help you? Because it's not everywhere. And uh, when do you apply it? And then actually let's go out and learn some of the techniques as opposed to just talking about it in English and find that the abstraction is really helpful in order to solve problems. But let's not start from that point because then we lose most of the students um, as, as we go along. By the way, just on the point of where you can use maths, 
one of my criticisms of what's happened in this year is some of the modeling, for example, for COVID, I think overstated what could be predicted. So one of the aspects you learn or you should be learning with mathematics is where can I use computation to get answers and where, frankly, are the errors so big that I can't really predict very much at all. So you've, you've and that isn't, it's funny, in our, in our culture now, I think if you look back 50 or 100 years ago, the idea that you could kind of work something out into the future as to, you know, precisely what would happen was almost crazy. Now it's almost turned on its head. It's like if you can't, you know, ministers, if you can't predict before the Brexit vote whether house prices are going to go up or down, then you must be lying and not telling us the truth. Well, the reality is you can't because there are too many variables. You don't know what's going to happen. Um, and so we have to be honest about that. And that ought to be part of the maths education people receive, but currently is not. Absolutely. And also, I know one of the other things you're, you're passionate about is actually having it relevant to understanding how you can adapt it into into real life situations sort of going forward, whether that's, you know, mortgages, interest rates, um, you know, just things which are fundamental to your current stage if you're going to get a bank account or your next stage as you start to get a job and buy a house or whatever that happens to be. Um, and so I'm really interested to know your thoughts in terms of let's assume that we're not going to change the entire education system this week, which is a shame, but that, that's yeah. kind of where we are. So how does the, the work that you're doing sort of help blend that and that sort of sort of how we start to morph it and actually enable the students that want to be thriving and, and taking these sorts of ideas forward, which I think most students that you'd speak to would be sort of, yes, let's get going with this. Um, and as opposed to the, the reality check of, of what most schools find, which is yeah. that, you know, by the end of the year, I need this student to have gone up this particular level so that we can get our, you know, more pupils next year for the funding, et cetera, et cetera. Um, look, it's, it's hard, as you say, you know, the ultimate goal here is system change, but system, the system, the ecosystem of education is very stuck and it's extremely hard to change. And, and the sort of linchpin is assessments, which, you know, everybody is, is forced to, to get through. Uh, and so when the content of those is off base, it's really hard to sort of navigate around that. But, but I think there are a few things, in fact, in the appendices in my book, I give some ideas of what you can do as teachers and, and parents and things to, um, to sort of move forward. I mean, one thing I think maths teachers can do in schools right now is we have this sort of four-step process to think about maths, define, abstract, compute, and interpret. And even if you're doing traditional maths, I think it's really helpful for students to get a much clearer picture in their head of where they are in the process, what they're doing, because I think it'll help them when the problems get harder. And we've got like a poster you can download and things. And I think it's quite useful just to be able to kind of stick that up and, and point to it. So that's just a very practical idea. Um, we've put a few sort of online modules up for self-study uh, around this computational thinking on at the Wolfram University, Wolfram U, uh, just as a sort of forerunner to, to get people interested. They're not, they're, I would say they're in beta version at the moment, they're not fully refined, but I think they've got some rather interesting aspects and very different to maths or coding. You know, another question I sometimes get asked is how does this fit with sort of coding curriculum and, and so forth and there absolutely is a fit I mean personally I would want to make maths and coding all one subject with computational thinking um, but I think meanwhile some of the coding curriculum could be steered towards some of these sort of maths uh, 
directions. And, and in fact, we've added, for example, some Wolfram language examples to the Raspberry Pi site. So, and, and that's freely accessible whether you're on a Raspberry Pi or not. Uh, so, uh, what I would encourage, I think, um, parents and teachers and others to do is, is to have a look at some of our modules. Just as a taster, um, we also have available. You know, we can. We also have a bigger set that that one can get for a school or, or individually. Uh, see if you can find some place to slot those in. They're not going to, you know, necessarily instantly improve exam results. So there's always a challenge with that. Whether that's for uh, some of the students who have a little bit of extra extra bandwidth, or whether that's trying to encourage students to get excited by the subject who you're not going to get their interest anyway otherwise. Um, those might be a few uh, a few sort of spots to use. And obviously parents, you know, if there's a chance to get your students, uh, your, your, your children interested in some of these ideas, that, that would be great. And even I think one of the things with parents particularly is trying to sort of pick out um, sort of things in life to apply this sort of computational thinking process to. I have a few descriptions in my book um, when my daughter was much, much younger. I used to have arguments about when you, for example, divided, we would have a piece of chocolate and you know, she would say dividing it in half was fair, and I would argue with her that wasn't true because I was bigger, and so I needed more chocolate. <laughs> uh, and she would then argue back that that would make me grow in the wrong direction, <laughs> and so therefore, actually, uh, she needed it for her growth. So she was argue she would need more chocolate than I did, even though she was smaller, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But to me, those are actually computational thinking skills, and wherever one can find places to slot those in as as much as possible, um, that I think is really to be encouraged, so to speak. And that's really, you know, why this podcast actually exists. It's to have those kind of, you know, it might not be we can do wholesale change in one fell swoop, but to understand what one, where it is that you can find out this information, but to know that other people are and that just the, the smallest change in your vocabulary or your, your just an idea or a short conversation with someone that just ignites that spark or just changes the whole idea of what the whole learning experience is whether that's within certain confines that we'd like to change or not actually can be the most valuable thing and I think understanding that and then of course knowing where you can go and find out more and showing what these examples are are, are incredibly important. I'd just like to add one small thing as well near in my book I sort of launched a campaign called the Maths Fix uh, uh, campaign for core, computa core computational curriculum change and it's basically sort of five points that I suspect most people listening to this would agree with. The more people we can have sort of add their name to that, you'll find it on the MathsFix website, the, the, the kind of better, because what I'm trying to do is get as many people who agree with this as possible so that one can then start to push the system change as well. It won't do it by itself. But I think what, one of the aspects of this that's so frustrating is I think particularly most people in, in a country like the UK are pretty pra practical, pragmatic in the end most of them understand that they didn't like maths very much at school and that it probably without a computer isn't the right thing for the future but our politicians are very scared of making a change because they think that it will be unpopular and difficult to sell and you know it's not going to be trivial there'll be nasty headlines about it and so forth i think the more that they can understand that with a bit of help and discussion I think that most of the population would, this would be a huge win. It's actually one of the biggest policy wins you can do in education because it's sort of a point change, a big point change, but it is a point change, uh, which I think most people would see as modern and 
taking us into the AI age, and as you say, having Britain as a a leader rather than a follower. Uh, and so I really um, it, it, we're we're really trying to sort of as well as pushing ideas on the ground to try, also trying to have as much voice as possible in public, so that we can try and get this debate going. I really love that, and I think you know all of us have children at home or children that we're teaching that their time is now and um and I, and I think anything that we can do to kind of like say to sort of wave that flag or, or or the piece of paper to say look this is what we are thinking collectively and I think that's such an important point is the fact that it's not about scarcity or, or worrying about being scared about it not being a vote winner it's the fact that like you say if we could change that whole perception of actually this is a winner and why would you not then 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 it becomes a win-win and you and you're absolutely right you know a lot of these sort of policy changes come from what they think needs to happen or what they've seen and then jumping on the bandwagon so it is these types of things and this bandwagon that's being created which is the most powerful thing and I should also add, I mean, you know, whether one likes them or not, the current government are into data science, not necessarily for education, but they think that data science is important as a way to move the country forward. I'm not saying the other the other politicians aren't. I mean, I'm not sure there's any particular dissent from that in the UK political scene anyway at the moment. But I think that banner is a useful uh, a useful rallying cry as well for education, because it's pretty obvious that that's not happening in mainstream school education. And at some point, it must become more and more obvious to more of the, the politicians and other people in government that those two really aren't aligned. I think that's true. And I think and, and one of the things which is interesting for me is kind of how we how we impart some of this knowledge to the, the young people in our life in terms of we've got experience looking back and also that kind of modeling idea you know if we want things to be different then we have to stand up and do those things different in, in order for that to change and I think it's a bit of a two-way street there um so I'm quite interested to know what advice you would give your your younger self now sort of looking back in that particular kind of way I know we have experience I know um younger people wouldn't necessarily even take that advice on board but I think it's an important for people to hear what that is and and then it can like say can go into the the framework of how it expands in the future well let, let me say some very general advice not particularly maths which i guess i've learned uh, you know when i think back to school and and so forth um i mean subjects and things i enjoyed that i really dug into have proved to be very helpful to me to, one example which i do remember strongly was i managed to argue to do graphic design i was the last year of o levels so graphic design o levels before gcse's as opposed to taking more french and i successfully managed to argue against rather a lot of resistance from my school to do that um, and graphic design has been very not only you know i found it fun and i got an a grade in it because i found it fun but it was also uh it's been of enduring use. I mean, you know, I've, I've used it in my business career and things. I'm, I'm, you know, I often help our design groups figure out what to do. So I think it's good to be able to, as much as possible, follow. And this is a message actually to parents as well as students, I should say. It's good to follow things that seem interesting, even if they don't seem the most important from a sort of, you know, checkbox. Uh, I'm going to get into the best university point of view. And I think I'm seeing that increasingly with, uh, in a sense, you know, employees, people we hire that, I mean, sure, I want to see what education they've got. But in the end, actually, it's more important whether they're interested in stuff, whether they can think clearly, 
uh, etc etc than whether they necessarily got the best grades and everything because I think the grades are diverging from some of the, the skills and interests we need what else would I tell myself um, I think probably worry a bit less about the immediate I mean it's hard to say this because you know I did okay at my exams although less good than I did in the school term actually uh, but I got extremely concerned about the exams as many many people do now I think the pressure now is much greater even than it was then and so I think one message is if you work hard and are sensible you know in the end it'll probably come right don't panic too much about the exams if you can if you can try not to but you know do work hard it's it's that you want to work hard play hard but don't get too stressed because I think the stress in itself is bad and sort of is negatively reinforcing when you get into outer outer life so I, I wish I could have learned that a bit more stuff will typically be okay as long as you put your mind to it yeah I think that's really important and and one of the things that just struck me then is that it's our job is the the elders as it were whether it, whether you're a parent or a teacher to kind of set that environment of of kind of th this is where you are this is what you're doing but I think when almost from a curriculum point of view you know like we were saying when everything's real life related then you can see how you step into that and the exam while it may still seem important and and, and like you say have anxiety attached to it you can understand how it's part of your life. I think part of the issue that's coming um, from a mental health point of view at the moment is is very much that kind of it's all just about the exam. So your, you know, many yeah, years crazy. at school just comes down to a two hour sit, as it were, and, and that I know, really and can't be the right thing. And, and the thing is, that's got much worse in my view is, I mean, look, I was in pretty high pressured schools and you know and so forth, but there was more rounding to it. It was like. I mean, actually, one of the interesting things that's happened is, and I think this doesn't happen most places as far as I understand, I, I always had which position I was in the set in the school, which is very against current thinking. Uh, now, there was an actual advantage to that, funnily enough, because I then knew, as I said, that I was better at my terms work than I was at the exam. It was clear, it was there, I could tell. And so now I wouldn't necessarily know that in quite the same way because you get kind of more effort marks and you don't really know where you are. And students will often feel like, so I know there are good reasons for why that isn't done. But I feel like there's a sort of that puts more pressure on the one mark you do see, which is your exam grade in the end. And so that actually sort of makes, makes that more of an issue in many ways. I mean, the other thing I would say is um, I learned some of the most important aspects of what I learned were nothing to do with the curriculum. They were interesting teachers who had interesting things to say and would go off piste for one reason or another, or we would find ways to, you know, uh, bargain with them about when we had to do homework or whatever, you know, skills that weren't specifically to do with the curriculum. And I think the more one can sort of hone into that, particularly with, you know, with teachers that you, you think are interesting, um, the better and and I mean again it's it's such a pity that and, and I understand why this has happened but somehow it feels like at many schools in fact all schools really it, it kind of what teachers are allowed to do has sort of got narrowed it, it, everything's much more controlled and collimated and, and, and I get it you know some teachers did wrong things and we want to avoid that but on the other hand we don't really want good teachers who have lots of exciting interesting eccentric things to say to kind of get to get pulled down to just having to do a very sort of collimated set of set of uh, set of tasks, and and I really hope that can sort of be unlocked a little bit as we go forwards. 
Yeah, I really love that. And I think it all comes down again to, like you said, about the immediacy of your life, you know, making it relevant to you. You know, you can't have anything more relevant than the conversation you're having with the person in your class or your school. And, and like I say, you're not going to be great at every subject. You're not going to necessarily like every teacher, but you just lean into the ones that you do and you lean into those conversations with the teachers that kind of get you and see you and all that kind of thing. And from there, you suddenly realise this is actually a two-way street in many ways. It's not just about just turning up, doing what you have to do and then leaving at the end of the day. <laughs> And the thing is, you know, in real life, like, you know, people get annoyed sometimes, right? So it's like, well, teachers get annoyed sometimes. And, and of course, there are limits on this, but you, you kind of want to see that emotion come through. You don't want it all kind of like, well, you know, the rule, the rubric says you mm -hmm. mustn't, you mustn't do this and the, and the other. And then, because I mean, we used to enjoy, you know, we used to know there was sometimes you could wind up a teacher and do this that, and the other, and then they reacted. And I think that's all important aspect of learning about life learning about how people interact and i actually think as a it's a funny extra danger i've noticed to some extent uh when we employ younger people now which is there are certain in-person sort of styles of communication that they're really not used to anymore at all and because they're used to either they're used to doing everything online they're used to kind of pre-negotiating meeting up online they're pre-negotiating this and that online and it's actually quite difficult. Sometimes when you get them in like an office environment or something, it can be quite hard for them to understand how you interact in a way like that. It's sort of bizarre. Um, and so, again, I think the more of that sort of interaction we can have in colleges and schools, uh, the better. And encouraging people not always to be. I mean, I'm, no, I, I'm great about that. I'm, I'm part of the computer industry, so I'm all for some of the advances that have happened. But I think there's we need to be clear on where we need person people to be and actually it's interesting in this year how much i've noticed in person working has made a difference so obviously we were all locked down in sort of march and nobody was was in our office or anything like that and then in the summer we managed to get some some folks back it made a huge difference uh actually to be interacting in person and and it is interesting to see that it's kind of one of those experiments that one doesn't get normally to try absolutely and I, and I, and i certainly noticed that from my my children's experience was the fact that in some ways when they were learning online at home there were some benefits to that they quite liked the fact they could start slightly later because they hadn't quite got all the live lessons going so it was kind of do the work set for the day so that the, the days were shorter because they could get the work done faster because there's a lot less time wasted in terms of being at school um, and that worked in many ways but then having gone back to school in september i think the the social interaction the being with their friends um the working together and the collaboration has far outweighed that and and my daughter certainly has been off the last couple of weeks because there were teachers who weren't there weren't enough teachers in school to cover a lot of the things so that they, they were sent home for a couple of weeks and it was very interesting having had sort of the experience of that close proximity in terms of being off being on being off again and really glad to get back again this week just to be able to kind of really sort of get back into that familiarity also i think another aspect of that is the idea of time wasting versus not so i know that certainly in terms of um working in a company here it's like people saying well you know my commute time it's kind of great because i could sit at home and i could work all through my commute time but actually the realizations come that the commute time isn't wasted it's a sort of a reset period in a sense mm -hmm. and i feel the same about 
you know kids going to school and things there's there's in, sort of looking at it from an accounting point of view there's an efficiency to be gained just sitting sitting at home online but somehow that isn't real it it you you gain efficiencies from changing scene from moving about from seeing people from being in a different environment and as you say certainly in the long term those completely outweigh um the accounting efficiency absolutely absolutely well can we just um wrap up by can you give us where people can come and find out much more about you and of course the book and, and all the things you've got because I just think it's such an important factor sort of rounding all of this part of the conversation up that like we said before you can do small changes you can do large changes there's places that you can go in and actually get wholesale ex expert advice and, and things so, so tell us where people can go and find out more. So if you go to computerbasedmath.org um, is the summary of the change we're trying to make happen. There's a sister site called computationalthinking.org, which is more about sort of more generally computational thinking, not just at schools, but across different areas. But I think probably the, the first and more relevant site for, for this. Um, my book is actually part of in the computerbasedmath.org, but if you you'll see it there, but it's also the mathsfix.org. And what I've tried to do in the book is is walk through from, in a sense, got three parts. There's what's the problem? as uh, part one. Part two is our specific proposal for how to fix it. What does the curriculum look like? What do the outcomes look like? How have we tried to construct these? What's in them? That sort of thing. And then the third part is how we make change. What are all the problems? Some of the things we've discussed today about where one can sort of a poke to get a change and and why that really, really matters. And, and I talk about sort of a new enlightenment, if we can get this right. Um, uh, a sort of computational enlightenment in the same way as, as we had uh, some hundreds of years ago. So that's um, that's sort of the, the best place to look. And um, there are very sort of shorter pieces and longer pieces, depending on how much detail one wants to go into. It's very complicated if you add it all up. But the simple, the idea is pretty simple, which is take modern machinery and use it uh, in our schools in the way it's used in the outside world. And that's what we need for our AI age. And, and uh, yeah, I'd be really, really keen to get as many of your of your listeners in to, to have a look at that and see what they think and do send us messages and uh, uh, and uh, see how you can engage. That would be great. Well, Conrad, thank you so much for your, your input and your insights and your wisdom on this. And, and what I love the most is always the fact that we know people are out there making a difference we're not stuck we're we've talked about we'd like some kind of system change but it is possible there are people leading the way as a guiding light exactly as you're doing so thank you very much for sharing that with us oh thanks it was really good conversation thanks for listening to the education on fire podcast for more information of each episode and to get in touch go to educationonfire.com education is not the filling of a pail lighting of a fire.